1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sharp DFS Analysis here on Rotogrinders.com. My name is Chris Cimino wishing you a happy holidays or whatever you're celebrating this upcoming weekend. Just find a way to celebrate something. I'm looking forward to the NFL action here in week 16. We are going to be breaking it down from a Vegas and advanced analytics standpoint and joining me to go over this as we've had for the past 15 weeks, we've
2: got Chris Raybon and Warren Sharp. Chris, what's going on today? What's up guys? Happy holidays to everybody. Uh try to give you guys some tips to help you guys out so you can spend your time doing more important things like being with family shopping and celebrating amen we are getting ready for
1: all kinds of good things to happen this upcoming weekend nfl included warren i know you're getting excited for all the above what's happening man
3: yeah um definitely you know this weekend is is tricky because uh not all the time do does I don't think they'll ever play games, like a full slate of games on Christmas Day, even if it falls on a Sunday. They move those games to a Saturday. Um, But it's always tricky. I mean, a lot of, obviously, uh, it goes without saying like a lot of people do celebrate Christmas. And so this is Christmas Eve. There's a lot of different things that are going to be going on. Um, in people's lives so actually a lot of the sharper groups get down on these games a little bit earlier um, you know there's this conception that you know like they're always waiting till the last second to do it but you know they they, they do they want to do some things too uh, with their families and that sort of thing so a lot of times it um, any time that you have like odd things happening with this the calendar like Sunday NFL games over in London that start at 9 30 like it's not just the, the guys getting up and, and betting that game early, it's still moving on all the different games because they just want to get in, get their work done. They have guys helping them out and that sort of thing. It's not just a one-man crew. And so they want to get all coordinated on the same page and get it done and then move on. And so the same sort of thing happens um, when you've got this this full slate on, uh, on Christmas Eve
1: as well. Yeah, and that's going to be going on with the people who are making their DFS lineups this weekend too, a little bit different of a schedule for – even the sharper guys out there, uh, everyone's dealing with family situations. So, you know, not too much to keep in mind there other than, you know, this is a week where you can capitalize on uh, your research, uh, maybe a little bit more than usual if you maintain, you know, some sort of an edge as far as making sure you get it done the way you might normally do it versus trying to take a little bit of a break. Just make sure you get it done uh, this weekend. Now, when we talk about strategy this week, I want to talk about something that you just hit on when you talk about sharp betting groups and what they're up to with their money on a week-to-week basis. Basically, uh, their decisions sway the, the total dollars on a betting line so much that you could see situations where there might be more tickets on one side of the coin than actual money. The sharp betting groups may actually have a sharp side to a game. doesn't always occur, but... We, we want to fade that public situation. We want to fade those situations where the public is heavy on a game, but the Sharps are actually on the other side. We want to basically try to be on the same side as the Sharps. So there's a lot of misconceptions in what I just said alone, Warren, and I'm, I'm going to throw it to you to try to clean this up a little bit. When I say public side versus sharp side, you know, can we actually know who, what the sharp side is? You know, who are the Sharps? And when is it actually possible for us to know which side is the Sharper side when it comes to a betting line?
3: Um, yeah it it's tricky this is definitely something that uh, I think this show in particular has been helpful for the guys in the d f s market because a lot of um, a lot of the guys in the d f s market aren't nearly as connected in the sports betting uh, market and having access to you know the groups and the, and the people in the groups and the the accounts that they bet into and things of that nature um, so that's what we're trying to do is like is share some of that information um just a couple of misconceptions off the top, you know, there's not always a sharp or a square. There's always tends to be a square side to a game, but that doesn't mean the sharp guys uh, get involved in every single game. Number one, uh, number two, there's always a conception that the sharp guys or groups um, are, are, you know, obviously getting involved on these games and, and you could see where they are. Like you could tell where they are on these games. And that's also not necessarily true. There's some cases that, uh, it's pretty evident. Like it's difficult to mask that. Um, you know, we, in our uh, production meeting, we just discussed the uh, the Tampa Bay Atlanta game on Monday night. That was a game this past week where, you know, the public sides were cashing in the majority of the day on Sunday. Like they have been a lot later on this season. And you knew that the sharp books are going to need Tampa Bay to come through uh, because they're getting so much public action. Again, these guys, when the public wins, they tend to keep betting and they keep rolling it over. So, and they bet mostly favorites. And so you see the line shaded a little bit more towards the favorites. And in that case, you know, that line was six and a half, then it went up to seven and there were some seven and a halfs out there even. Um, and definitely the sharp side in that game was Tampa Bay. And, you know, it's, it doesn't take much difficulty to look at like some of the public bet percentages or something and see that, you know, the public side clearly is the Atlanta Falcons here. Um, but, it, you know, a lot of the times the, the groups are going to – you're not just going to be able to see you – know, like there's a conception that reverse line movement is the obvious indicator. Um, so I'll give you a, a perfect – here's a perfect game for this week, okay? Um, Jacksonville, San Francisco. If you look at where that, that line opened, uh, there were some 5 and a halfs out in Vegas when it opened, uh, fives offshore, and that line got bet down all the way down to four. Um, and there are some groups – that are actually on San Francisco in this game. They took the underdog plus four and a half or plus four. There are that, but then you just saw this morning that money came in on the Jacksonville Jaguars and pushed that line while there's a couple fours, mostly back up to four and a half. That is movement from a different group. Um, and you know, so you've got sharp guys on opposite sides of the games, uh, sharp groups, I should say on opposite side of the game. So, um, it's, it is tricky just to look at the screen and try to always know where the sharp money is, uh, by screen. I mean like an odd screen. So you don't want to just look at, I'll give you, here's one easy free tip. You don't want to just go to like whatever site that you bet at and just look at their lines and then just like come back like a, a half a day later and see if that line has moved. Like you can go to like sharpfootballanalysis.com where there's uh free services elsewhere where, you could see the live lines page and you can see what the line opened at and where it is now. And you can compare it across a number of books. You could also click on any single game, like a particular line and you could see what the line history is for that. Um, so yeah, just by, that's what I mean by screen, just by looking at the screen, you're not always going to be able to tell, but um, there are some cases, like I said, a caveat that there are some cases that you can tell based on looking at the screen. Um, but it's, it does get trickier and trickier to try to figure out if you don't have access to information or talk to anybody who has information, uh, exactly what the sharp side is, unless you use some of your own intuition. Like you guys probably know who the most popular teams are. I, mean, I get contacted, uh, sometimes by a guy who is like, has no connections. He just started betting a little while ago and he's like, man, I really like, the Rams look so great this week. Like the Rams, you know, laying six and a half. They look like a, a surefire. You know, there's so many problems with Tennessee and everybody's down in Tennessee. Like the Rams look like a slam dunk here. Um, and, you know, I, I basically just messaged him back right away. And this was like, I think like Sunday night or Monday. I was like, I can tell you what, like the books are going to need Tennessee here. That's definitely going to be the side that the books need. I'm not on the game in any way, shape, or form, I told them. Like, I'm not, I'm not advocating for the Rams. I'm not advocating for the Titans. I'm just telling you that um, when, it, when a game looks too good p- to be true, then it very well could be. And it doesn't take anybody – it doesn't take me telling you guys uh, to know that after what the Rams did in Seattle with such a huge uh, final score and, and shutting them down, that the public is not going to be all over the Rams and fading the Tennessee Titans at home and taking anything underneath of a touchdown – And that line is down to actually six and a half plus 100. So it's even money at a really sharp book called Pinnacle right now, which means that, you know, betting 100 wins you 100. Um, They're asking for money to come in on the LA Rams because all the other lines are are juiced up if you want to bet on the Rams right now. So we'll see where this goes from here and if any groups end up getting back on uh, the Rams like later in the weekend. But uh, as of right now, like it's it's pretty definite that that's a defined – Uh, sharp versus square uh, game right there.
1: Okay, so one more question since we're probably more concerned about the totals and how the flow of the game is going to go in DFS. When you see that there is a pretty defined sharp side, if you're able to discern that information, do you find this to be an effective indicator sometimes, all the time? I mean, would you say that when you see this sort of a situation arising that it's worth your time going to investigate deeper if, say, you don't have the time to research as deeply as a Warren Sharp does? It's worth their time to do what. So just dive deeper into the matchup. Try to understand why the sharps might be on that side. Okay.
3: Yeah. um, Definitely. I I think. I think any time that you see information comes across that you know that affects the line that you didn't think or anticipate was going to happen, you you do need to take a closer look at it. Like, am I missing a key injury here? Is there some type of uh, like a, a matchup that I just wasn't considering as a player returning? Um, is a coach talking about something this past week that, you know, may not have been noteworthy newsworthy, like prior to this time, but they're going to change up some sort of a strategy or something like that. And so absolutely any point in time that there's a, uh, line move or, or something that indicates like, Hey, this, this is like taking some, what looks like to me to be taking some sharp money. And I was looking at the other side absolutely i mean whether or not you can confirm that that's sharp money like most people out there probably can't confirm it but you think it looks like it like there's definitely definitely some reverse line movement here you may want to take a closer look at that um doesn't necessarily mean that like uh okay in this game the rams versus the titans right like if you're looking at the total and you're thinking uh well i i want a lot of points here because i want to focus on todd Gurley and some of the rams or i want to focus on golf or something like that um and, and you see money coming in on Tennessee and the under, it doesn't necessarily mean that like Jared Goff can't have a good day here uh, or, or you know you should change your whole philosophy, but you should definitely dig deeper into it and, and think about what could happen if things don't go the, uh, play out the way that I was thinking like what could derail this? And that's one of the things I always advocate people to do is just think like negatively about what their Looking to do think about first and foremost the way you already know in your mind What you want to do based on what you've seen like we talked about all the biases that come into play on, on our last show or two shows Ago you already kind of know what you might want to do Like one of the first things that you should do after you like already understand like this is what I'm thinking Think about what could go wrong with that idea. Think about the negative things that, how could this be derailed? How could this get screwed up? And if you can kind of argue against a lot of those things, uh, then i would keep sticking with what you wanted to do. Um, But if you see a lot of things that are causing you distress and like, oh, well, yeah, maybe, maybe this could be bad. I wonder what the likelihood of that actually happening is and do a little bit digging, then, then you may want to change your mind. It's, it's, it's a, it's not something that's like hard and fast that happens all the time. You definitely need to kind of uh, take it on a case by case basis.
1: Yeah, it's just interesting. I hear a lot of people say things like, well, Vegas is trying to tell us something. And I think you know that helps us try to maybe clear up a little bit that there's you know, there's a little bit more to it. There's no universal axioms as far as looking at sharp side versus public side. But it's interesting to think about when you look at what the betting lines are trying uh, you know, to tell us if they're trying to tell us anything at all. And uh, in most cases, it's a little bit more complicated than they're definitely telling us something all the time. Chris, when we talk about projected ownership though, that's kind of the way that we measure the sharp side in DFS. You know, what are we projecting their ownership at? What do they actually end up being owned in both sharp contests and low stakes contests? So those high stakes contests generally going to show us what the sharp side truly was. Lower stakes contests are going to tell us maybe where the gap is, where the public plays were that weren't necessarily as sharp. So when you take a look at something like projected ownership, how how do you kind of use this beforehand to determine you know where you think you can get an advantage on the field and also after the fact to determine where the sharp side may have truly lied
2: i think with projected ownership what you're really trying to compare is you know what how much ownership is this player going to have and how does that compare to what his probability is of that ownership paying off so That's why I created a metric called GPP leverage score, which essentially does that by you look at, it looks at all of the players at the position in a given week, because that's something that's not talked about enough with projected ownership is that, well, a player's ownership could be projected highly, but if there's no viable alternative, then it doesn't make any sense really to fade a particular player in a, in a situation, in a good situation, no less Um, if if there's not a real viable alternative. So what GPP leverage scores do is they take stock of all of the ownership for a particular position and they look at uh, the likelihood of all the players at that position hitting value, and then it comes up with uh, a score where one is average and over one is positive. That means that you have an advantage there. There's some leverage there. That means that a player's – in ownership is projected to be lower than his probability of hitting value so what i I like to really use it in terms of wide receivers because that's where there's so many alternatives yet the ownership will still be concentrated on there's always going to be a few wide receivers that are going to be probably pushing 20 percent ownership or higher and then there's going to be another dozen half dozen somewhere in that range that are going to probably have double digit ownership but that's still only accounting for maybe half of the wide receivers, especially on a main slate. So, uh, you know, half of the number one wide receivers, that is. So you still have all these other wide receivers that are going to have single-digit ownership that are going to be under-owned. And essentially, there, you know, if a player's probability of hitting uh, GPP value, let's just say, is 10%, and he is projected to be owned only 5%, well, then you have some leverage there. So I went back and looked at the DraftKings Millionaire Maker Winning lineups just to give you a sense of how this all works, and it turns out that for wide receivers, forty percent of them had GPP leverage scores above one, and then sixty percent had under one. So what that's telling you is, yeah, you still need to to have some of those high value plays in there; those plays that are projected for high ownership. You don't want to just go completely away from that, but you usually need at least one play that's going to have lower ownership and going to 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 give you some leverage. In, in in a particular lineup, and that's gonna that's what's gonna differentiate you. So last week, for example, Keelan Cole had a, a, a leverage score of one point sixty six, which is very good. He turned out to be in the winning lineup. You had Alshon Jeffrey, even though he only had fourteen point three DraftKings points, he ended up in the winning lineup. He, he had a, a GPP leverage score uh, just over one. And you know these things could kind of just tell you, okay, what where where are the situations where. I, I'm getting some value. It's the same thing as getting, looking for value with projected points. Okay, projected points versus salary. This player is giving me value. This makes him a good play. Well, this, in the same way, you can look at, okay, well, this player is projected for uh, a certain amount of points, a certain amount of value and a certain amount of ownership, and I can get value that way. So a lot of times it will point out guys who just – they're not in a great matchup or any. There's just not, or anything like that. They're just not in a bad matchup either, but they're just going – overlooked because there's a lot of players in this league that are good players that uh, a tough matchup isn't necessarily going to stop them. Like we, we see Doug Baldwin, you know, he's not, he's a good player. Yeah. He'll have quiet games, but there's also no cornerbacks necessarily that can just shut him down either. So there's nothing really stopping him from having a good game. So you'll see him a lot of times pop up with a leverage score above one, somebody like golden Tate, who in a given week usually doesn't get that much ownership unless it's like a really obvious spot but Golden Tate's another player. Every week he's liable to, to go off. I mean, he's a good player. And it, you just kind of looking for things like that is what really gives you an edge. You know, it's not about just fading all of the chalk or only going contrarian or, or, or never going contrarian. It's kind of just that balance of finding the situations where you can go uh, off the map and off the board a little bit and still get positive uh, expected value.
1: Yeah, good stuff there on on projected ownership and you know how to leverage that ownership because like you said, it's not always a matter of just simply fading high ownership. If you faded a guy like Drake last week, he probably didn't pay off too well. All of his pivots didn't necessarily come through for you. Uh, he came through with a nice score. So again, it's not always about taking the un, you know, taking the opposite side of high ownership. It's about figuring out where you need to come off that high ownership in favor of a lower owned pivot with a high leverage situation you know, more value projected than his ownership implies. Let's get on to the games, guys. There's a lot to talk about this week. we got plenty of strategy crammed in there. So let's go ahead and talk about the high total games first. We've got Atlanta, New Orleans, Seattle and Dallas, Oakland, Philadelphia as the highest total games worth discussing, lowest total games, the Giants, Arizona, Denver, Washington, Cleveland, Chicago, Minnesota, Green Bay. Of all of those totals, Warren, where's one where we might find a situation where Vegas might not have it exactly correct?
3: Um, well, you know what? One that I'm looking at is uh, is this Cowboy Seahawks game. Um, you know, I, I think when when Ezekiel Elliott left, uh, Vegas clearly didn't understand how to account properly enough for him. And of course, Tyron Smith being out this week is is a big loss for that offensive line. Um, but I, I still think that they you know, you have to make larger adjustments for his presence being uh, back there. And uh, like, there's a, a few different ways we can break this game down. But first of all, you know, one of the biggest things that uh, Dallas has struggled with without Ezekiel Elliott being there, they're, they're actually not that bad in terms of success rate running the football, like they're second best in the NFL um, over the last like month, they're doing a great job of having successful gains on the ground. But what those successful gains aren't doing is being explosive. They are very poor with explosive runs, with Ezekiel Elliott not being there. Whereas, of course, when he was there, their explosive run rate was significantly higher. So that's first and foremost. And then you look at the matchup that they've got and what Seattle allowed last week to Todd Gurley, of course. Um, There are things uh, to look forward to with regard to Ezekiel Elliott's presence giving them this upside in terms of larger, more explosive runs. Then you have the element of running back passes out of the backfield. Um, And that's one of the things that, you know, forget about it. Like without Ezekiel there, the the Dallas Cowboys struggled immensely with throwing the football to their starting running back and just having him be very productive in space. And um, obviously that's one of the things that – Dallas is going to have now with Ezekiel Elliott uh, back there I mean this team currently ranks 31st in the league uh, in explosive sorry in uh, running back pass uh, success rates uh, success rate on passes to their running backs and a large part of that was because of Ezekiel Elliott not being there and so when you put him back in there instantly what happens is you've got a massive security blanket for Dak Prescott when he drops back and needs to throw the football. And it's, it's not just that, Oh, Hey, there's a guy here who can catch the ball, but it's that this is a viable option for me to throw the ball to this guy for us to gain a first down or have a successful play. Whereas with his out without Zeke there, it was, Oh, here's my like, you know, dump pass auxiliary, but I'm really trying to push it down there because I know we're not going to get much if I throw the ball to this guy. So what should happen is a confidence boost for Dak Prescott, who really hasn't played all that great. Um, and, and then you've got the matchup edges in the passing game, which once the Legion of Boom went out, I mean, that was the, that was the main talking point about Seattle was their pass defense allowing tons of explosive plays. And um, we, we, we only saw a little bit of that because the Rams had such a strong run game Uh, last week but if you look at what like the Jacksonville Jaguars were able to do to them um, a couple weeks ago even uh, even the Philadelphia Eagles had some success they only scored 10 points because they fumbled the ball away and 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 screwed themselves a lot in that game out in Seattle but um, Atlanta did it to them as well back in week 11 on the flip side of things let's talk about the Seattle Seahawks offense here and Look, they, they have not been very successful. They've been allowing a ton of pressure. But there's a couple things they have going for them as well. Number one, Dallas has only recorded – Dallas has recorded zero sacks in four out of their last five, five games. Um, that's a nice staff. Uh, I heard Evan Silva share. So that's big. Um, number two, you've got the fact that Seattle – look, they haven't really been very successful over the last month of the season um, in terms of what they've been doing offensively. But there's two things to take into consideration. Number one, they played a brutal schedule of opposing defenses, the Eagles, the Jaguars, and the Rams. That's a very, very difficult schedule there. And number two, while they haven't been as successful in terms of their success rate, they've been very explosive. They're actually, like, I want to say the number two uh, most explosive run team and the number four most explosive pass team over the last four weeks of the season. So they've been very explosive. A lot of their uh, pass attempts or run attempts are gaining big yardage. They're just not very consistent. Well, one of the things that Dallas tries to do defensively is to limit those big plays. and and But they've been fortunate in that they've played some teams that, again, this is where the trending data comes into play. If you look at the teams that they've played the last three weeks, I mean, at the start of the season, you could say, oh, yeah, the Redskins, great. Yeah, the, the Raiders, great. And the Giants, maybe they'll be good, too, this year with – all of their players. But if you look at what these teams have been the last four weeks, terrible and explosive run offense, terrible and explosive pass offense. I mean, the Redskins can't feel the running back. The giants have no wide receivers. The Redskins, the only thing they've got going for them besides uh, old Vernon Davis, who's still, you know, chugging along is Jamison Crowder. Apart from that, like there's no consistency in that pass game. And we know the struggles that Derek Carr's having himself, his receivers trying to get on the field and stay healthy. Like, The last three games that they've played have been against teams that are completely no longer explosive whatsoever. I mean, the Redskins used to be the number one most explosive offense in the NFL over the last month. They're like down at 26. I mean, it's, it's just terrible, but injuries along the line. And this time of year, that's why you have to look at, um, you know, more recent trending stuff. Seattle could do pretty well, as long as they give Russell Wilson a little bit of time. And that's the other benefit is like uh, compared to a lot of these guys that dallas has faced it hasn't faced very many running quarterbacks i mean if you remember that uh when they played alex smith we thought that alex would run the ball a little bit more and have some success alex didn't really run it all that much but he ran it a couple times and had some some nice runs there um but apart from that you know they they really carson wentz was very mobile put up 37 points against them yeah other than that they're playing tons of pocket passing quarterbacks so i think that there's an upside there for wilson not just running the ball, but also escaping the pocket to generate some of these more explosive plays. Um, And, and, you know, it's going to come down to can these teams score touchdowns? Because I don't have a lot of confidence in Seattle's field goal kicker. This is a game that both teams realistically are probably knocked out of the postseason, but they still have a little bit of hope, so they're still going to be playing for it. So I expect whichever team gets down early to be a lot more aggressive. We see Seattle, this is notorious, when Seattle goes on the road they don't score much in the first half like they are very just they for whatever reason like i've i've talked to some guys out there in uh, in seattle closely associated with the team and they don't get explosive plays early they're not generating explosive passes they don't attempt as many as they do at home and it's a definite you know um it's 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 real it's not just uh talking about it but in this spot i mean they're going to have to do that because uh, they cannot afford to get down on Dallas and let Zeke just run the ball and turn out the clock and wear things down in the second half. So I think Seattle absolutely must place a focus on trying to come out aggressive early
1: in this game. I think the Dallas run game will be the heaviest owned portion in terms of DFS ownership. You will see Zeke Elliott on DraftKings be one of the top, two highest-run running backs in my estimation right now. So that's a situation where I would probably be fine going with the chalk if you are so inclined. As far as the Seattle side, I actually expect them to be somewhat underowned after the recent performances. So if Warren is correct, this game goes over to the total. Could be some value in GBB tournaments on the Seattle side. Chris, who do you got as far as a team that the Vegas total may not be exactly as you see it? I think
2: this Carolina-Tampa Bay game, the total is a little low. It's around 46, 46 and a half. But if you take a look at what these teams have been doing, over the past five games, the Carolina Panthers and their opponents over the last five weeks on average combined for uh, 58 points. The Panthers have been over 30 points in four of their last five games, but their opponents have also been over uh, 21 or more in in each of their last five games as well. So you have you have a situation where the Panthers are scoring a lot of points, they're giving up a lot of points, and just playing in, in a bunch of high-scoring games. And then the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, to a lesser extent, the same thing is happening over their last five games. Uh, the, them and their other, the opponent combines for forty-eight points uh, on average, and Tampa Bay's been over twenty. At, at their, sorry, they've been at twenty or more in each of their last five games, and their opponents have been uh, at twenty or more in their last five games as well. So. There, there has over that's 10 combined games where none, neither Tampa Bay or Carolina or their opponents have scored fewer than 20 points. And this could be another one of those games where, you know, Carolina's offense clicking on all cylinders. We talk a lot about Tampa Bay and how much their defense struggles when they go on the road and they are on the road in this game. They're allowing a league high 30.3 points per game on the road. That's compared to 17.7 at home. So, Large discrepancy there for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going on the road. And you look at somebody like Jameis Winston and in the nine games that he's finished, he's been at 270 yards uh, in seven of them. And he's thrown multiple touchdowns in six of them. So Jameis Winston has kind of put up a a bunch of numbers and, and yardage in games because Tampa Bay's defense has been so bad that he's had to throw for a large portion of the game. You're going to have some players still out for Carolina. You're going to have Thomas Davis missing the game. Tampa Bay has been able to run the ball better. They're actually third in run success rate over the last three weeks, uh, coinciding with benching Doug Martin. So I think Tampa Bay can still have some success, even though Deshaun Jackson's probably not going to play in this game. And we already know Carolina, I don't have to talk too much about that. Cam Newton's clicking. He's running the ball over a double-digit, he averages double-digit attempts over the last four weeks. That's really helping that offense. Greg Olson came back with 116 yards last week. That's also going to help the offense. Demir Bird coming on strong. So just just a lot of avenues for the Panthers to continue to have success on offense. And then and they've been giving it right back. I mean, you look at some of the teams that have that have kind of done well against them. I mean, the Miami Dolphins, they, 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 the Panthers and Dolphins combined for 66 total points with the Dolphins still putting up 21 on a loss. The Jets scored 27 on Carolina. Uh, so, you know, there, there's definitely some potential here for a higher scoring game than I think the Vegas spread indicates. Yep, going to be some value on both sides of the ball too. Uh, you could consider some unconventional stacks if you
1: wanted to go with a Cam plus McCaffrey, if you're out there stacking in DFS world, you could go uh, with Mike Evans, who was being targeted down the field a little bit more last week than we had seen. Uh, his dot 18.1 last week as opposed to a season average of 13.7. Uh, you're looking at maybe Chris Godwin going to be in the mix here if Deshaun Jackson is indeed out for the game. So there's going to be some potential in DFS for us to stack this game if we want to get some correlations going. Obviously, there's some individual pieces you can use in cash games, I think a lot of people will run it right back with Cam Newton. Expect to be one of the most popular quarterbacks on the week, so I like the idea of this game being one that we can target for DFS purposes, and will, in all likelihood, go over the total if we are correct about our analysis on the defense is struggling more than the line suggests. Now let's take a look at some other aspects of the Vegas betting lines here. Let's take a look at some of these big favorites that are out there. <clears throat> We've got. Baltimore. We've got Minnesota. We've got Los Angeles Chargers, Los Angeles Rams, Carolina, Chicago, Kansas City, New England, Pittsburgh, and Oakland. Look at one of these weeks where we don't have a lot of close spreads. It's Detroit and Cincinnati and pretty much nobody else. So, Warren, when you take a look at all these spreads out there, where are we looking and saying – I'm not so sure about this. That we you think a favorite could struggle, an underdog could succeed. What looks interesting to you from the spread perspective?
3: Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting week because uh, as I kind of indicated at the top, anytime favorites do really well, um, which they did last week, of course, and they've been on a pretty good trend. The the guys, the public guys, who who public betters, you know, they're betting twenty, fifty, a hundred bucks a game. They're not moving the line, um, but collectively, like if all of them are getting involved on games and, and this time of year they're betting a lot on favorites who are in must win situations. I mean, that can skew the lines and add a little bit of line value um, in some cases. And so you're seeing a lot of large favorites this week. And, and, and most of them, I would say are skewed slightly um, towards the favorite being in the must win um, situation. One of the teams that I think um is in a really good position, even though, you know, they don't don't have their starting quarterback uh, back there um, because they lost Josh McCown, is the New York Jets. Um, They're playing at home on Christmas Eve. They're hosting the LA Chargers who are in LA, so they're traveling across the country for an early kickoff game. And the Jets are playing, and they're playing hard. Even with Bryce Petty in there, you know, a lot of times, like, and this is where you can see, like, well, is the team trying for the coach or not? A lot of times when a starting quarterback goes out and the team's going to be really struggling late in the season, uh, they lose their, their best quarterback, the team could easily fold up. I mean, they, they lost 23-0 to against uh, Denver in Denver back in Week 14. Um, Bryce Petty starts against the uh, Saints on the road, and that game is a close, lower-scoring game, um, and and the Jets are able to put up 19 points on the road, uh, put, put up a valiant effort there. After back-to-back road games in arguably two of the most difficult places to play football, I'm talking about mile high out in Denver for a team on the East Coast, and then you talk about you know down in New Orleans in that dome when the Saints have a winning record and are playing well. Those are two very difficult uh, spots to play. The last we saw the Jets at home, they beat the Kansas City Chiefs 38-31, and they should have beaten the Carolina Panthers um, before a couple of late scores by Carolina on a punt return and a fumble return. So a couple of non-offensive touchdowns there. But they still put up 27 points there. The Chargers – Difficult situation for them. Uh, they lost last week, got kind of steamrolled a little bit by the Kansas City Chiefs late in that game. And most importantly, they sustained a number of injuries. Um, myself, looking at the Chargers for their win total and futures this year, um, I was keenly aware of uh, one of their best players on defense who went out in the preseason, and that's Denzel Perryman. Uh, he's their kind of quarterback of the defense. He has the green dot, he calls out the plays. He got hurt in the preseason, missed most of the first half of the season, but came back, and the run defense did improve for a little while while he was there. He went out in this last game, as did Corey Legion, and this run defense definitely fell apart um, a little bit, and Kareem Hunt, you know, took advantage of that. The Jets are a team that wants to run the football, and I think the Chargers are now a team that they can actually run the football on and have some success and control the pace of this game a little bit. Then you got Phillip Rivers, who – look, I, I love the guy, um, but he is the biggest double-agent wild card that there is in the NFL right now. And he lost Hunter Henry, who's like one of his uh, – doesn't target him enough, in my opinion. I've gone on record saying this. I mean, the numbers bear that out. But he's one of their most efficient receivers. Um, if, if you think they're going to do anything but, like, focus in on Keenan, Keenan Allen here – um, from a Philip Rivers perspective, I don't know what to tell you. They're going to they, – they also lost Austin Eckler, the running back, who was like the change of pace guy who could catch balls out of the backfield. Um, so, I mean, Melvin Gordon is going to take a ton of workload here. Um, he's probably going to have a number of first downs that don't work out for him. He, it's not that he's going to have a bad game overall through volume and through like one or two big runs here or there or a nice catch out of the backfield. Um, he's going to – I think he's going to produce a decent game here but um, from a fantasy perspective, but it, to me it's going to be like a two-man show. It's going to be a ton of Melvin Gordon um, and a ton of Keenan Allen. And uh, the Jets can, can figure out how to make that damage not be quite as much as it would be had some of these other players been there and been getting touches and balanced out the offense a little bit. Um, so I, I think there was some value there. You could still grab some sevens on the Jets, which would be – my recommendation to do um, if you're looking for a little bit of a an underdog it's not a slam dunk I mean look at this time of year so many things play into it factor into it especially right around the Christmas break that um, I never really go wild with like a high volume of plays this time of the year because it's like the preseason as you guys know I mean you're you're handicapping motivation coaching strategy are they going to try players out are they going to what do they need to do? Like, the Chargers are in a must-win situation, but after a massive letdown, their playoff percentage is unlikely if they get down a little bit early or don't have a great start. Philip Rivers could easily start chucking interceptions out of desperation. Um, I mean, there's just so many weird things that could happen in a game like this, especially with how poorly coached the Chargers are. So it's it's definitely not a game that I love. I don't think there's any games this week that I love, but I think there's a little bit of value on the home underdog Jets.
1: Yeah, good stuff there, and certainly something to keep in mind when we're talking about those two guys that you mentioned, Melvin Gordon, Keenan Allen, figuring out what to do with them is going to be critical if that game doesn't go, as a lot of people would probably guess, in which most people, I assume, are looking at the Chargers and saying this is a spot where they're going to do quite well against the Jets, and you're saying the other side of that coin is completely possible. And I, looking at the results at New York lately, I think that that's completely plausible. Now, Chris, when you take a look at some of these favorites and underdogs out there is there any particular spot that stands out to you as one where the line might not come to pass the way it's being laid out right now
2: yeah I think I really expect the Kansas City Chiefs to to have a ton of of success I know they're already 10 point favorites I think this is really another one of these smash spots for them I think they could put up you know well over 30 points in this game since offensive coordinator Matt Nagy has taken over over the play calling duties. From Andy Reid, the Chiefs have scored 31 points, 26 points, and 30 points. They've been over 397 total yards in each of those last three games after doing so in only four of their first 11 games to start the year when Andy Reid was calling plays, and that's even with a couple of those blowups early in the season. So Kansas City has started to right their ship again on offense, and they have a a lot of advantages, particularly – against the Miami Dolphins. The Miami Dolphins are a team that struggles tremendously against the tight end. They rank 28th in DVOA against tight ends per football outsider. So that's a matchup for Travis Kelsey to exploit. Uh, Miami also just hasn't really been good in in any facet of their defense. They rank now, uh, what is it? 23rd in schedule adjusted uh, fancy points to running back. So, they've just been a, a, excuse me, 29th in, in schedule adjusted fantasy points. They'll so have two running backs. So this is another spot where Kareem Hunt could get off. Kareem Hunt has been uh, back to really be in the workhorse under Nagy. He, his touches are up by about three per game, 23 touches per game in, in these last three games uh, compared to 20 in the first uh, 11. And Hunt also nine targets last week and uh, you know 24 carries he's been over 24 carries in each of the last two weeks so this is a situation where Kansas City is, is starting to, to really use their weapons correctly again after they start to get a little cute and get a little predictable and stale uh, during that middle of the season now they have Matt Nagy here calling plays they have a ton of advantages against this Miami team and I, I think that the the, the, the game is kind of you know the, the over under isn't too high when the week started there was actually some bad weather forecast in Arrowhead it was there was going to be a storm and I spoke about this on the DFS MVP podcast but on FanDuel it looks like they actually lowered the prices of some of the members of the Kansas City passing game uh, in anticipation of that storm but the forecast now just calls for cold weather it's going to be a little bit below freezing I think 26 degrees but There shouldn't be much precipitation or anything like that, maybe a little wind. So uh, this is a game where Kansas City at home, I think, can really dominate. You got Miami traveling to yet another cold destination after going to Buffalo and giving up a lot of production to that Buffalo offense last week. I mean, Tyrod Taylor had a very good game from a fantasy perspective, as did LaShawn McCoy. Uh, Charles Clay came through with uh, one of his, his highest yardage totals of the year as as well at tight end. So Kansas City has that those same type of players where you have you have a guy with like Kareem Hunt, you have a guy like Travis Kelsey, and they can, they can exploit those matchups. And we haven't even talked about somebody like uh, Tyreek Hill or anyone like that. So I, I like the Kansas – and then also there's this Kansas, – the Kansas City defense is another one. They actually average 10 DraftKings points per game at home and only 4.0 – DraftKings points on the road they played seven games at home and seven games on the road so Kansas City's defense special teams also plays a lot better when they are in Arrowhead and I'm expecting the Dolphins to really struggle uh, this week uh, against Kansas City
1: yeah uh, nothing on the Dolphins I'm all that interested in short of maybe like a Jarvis Landry who's going to get five catches That's just going to happen every week at this point. I don't know if he's going to absolutely snatch the week. Like you said, there's a lot of reasons that the Dolphins could struggle. Certainly the Kansas City defense, interesting to me, against a Jay Cutler-led offense, like you said, on the road, in the cold. Just a lot of reasons uh, to like Kansas City here in this particular situation and uh, no reason uh, to find any fault in that particular take right there. That's a pretty sound judgment call. Let's go ahead and talk about some offensive players, Warren. Who could get it done for us this week we've looked at the analytics you've been staring at your computer screen like a maniac all week trying to find out where we can go for an offensive standpoint this week who do we got
3: um well it's 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 probably not going to be popular um but i think if you can if you could try to find and i'm not gonna actually recommend like a, a specific a specific player here but um one guy that I think – well, actually, actually, I will. Um, I'll change my mind. I'll, I'll, I was going to talk about a different game. But um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and go with Christian McCaffrey here for the Carolina Panthers. Um, you know, the Bucks just deactivating. He's put him on IR left and right. I mean, it's, it's pretty brutal for the injuries that they're dealing with. Um, and, and I really think, you know, Chris mentioned this game earlier as well um, in terms of what he thinks on the total. I just think Christian McCaffrey, with the amount of usage that he's been getting is just in an absolutely great position here to have a ton of success um, on the ground in the air. They've been targeting him a ton out of the backfield. Uh, he's just, just doing a lot for this offense right now. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he may not replicate exactly everything that he's done um, in the past, but in a game where they're likely to get the lead, and I think that they will. I mean, I think it's going to be difficult to expect Tampa Bay to do a lot here. I know, Chris, I don't know, maybe, Chris, you could touch on this after I finish uh, talking about it. But, you know, I'm not so sure that Mike Evans – I mean, he's like their their main guy because I think it's Deshaun Jackson's going to be out. But um, historically, at least, Mike Evans has struggled against Carolina. Um, I know he scored – he scored like I think only two touchdowns in like 50 attempts, uh, pass attempts over the last like six games or so. Um, he just has a very poor catch rate overall. Like he's still produced – decent yardage totals in a couple of the games and obviously he scored uh one touchdown in each of the last uh, i don't think he scored any in the first meeting but um i I just don't know if mike evans is really going to dominate and so i think we're going to have a lot of opportunities for um you know for the uh carolina panthers to be in favorable game script situations where they're going to be able to have a lot of success running the football as well um and and the the only downside here is you know Carolina does play at a slower pace, especially when they've got the lead. I mean, against uh, against Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, you know, there was a little touch and go, and they they kind of hustled a little bit more. But I really think that there's going to be a situation where they're going to lower their play volume a lot in the second half in this game, um, and and slow this game down a lot. So, but but I think Christian McCaffrey just has really solid floor and a pretty nice ceiling in this game.
2: Hmm.
1: Warren, you've been watching tape, huh? Well, watch this, Chris. Who do you got on offense this week?
2: Well, first, I'll uh, just to Warren's point about the uh, Mike Evans and the Carolina Panthers. the The Panthers, it looks like you know they, they've, you know, we kind of think of them as this good defense and a defense that you don't want to go up against. But at the last six weeks, they their, their their struggles at cornerback have really started to to take shape. They've allowed a wide receiver to score, score at least 15 PPR points in each of the last uh, six games. And over the, the, the last four games, they've allowed a, a wide receiver to score at least 18 PPR points. They, they, they've given up just a ton of production to uh, wide receivers lately. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's actually borderline re- ridiculous how in their last four games, they've given up over 200 yards per game, two wide receivers uh, combined seven touchdowns to wide receivers over the last four games um, and over 100 targets. So teams are really going at these corners on the outside for Carolina, James Bradbury, excuse me, and our Worley have not really fully developed to the point where I think Carolina would have liked. They're both rated uh, outside the top 80 in pro football focuses grades. So Mike Evans, he's really had a down season this year mainly because his targets are down last season, 10.8 targets per game this season, 8.8 targets per game. So it that's production is going to be down when you decrease targets. We all know that from playing a lot of DFS is that volume is important for wide receivers. But in this game, I think they're probably just going to force feed him uh, the football. So I'm not too uh, worried about him, but I, I do agree that Christian McCaffrey is as usual in a smash spot. I mean, this is a Bucks defense that's just been decimated at all three levels of the field. So, cause we know you need players at all three levels to be able to contain Christian McCaffrey. It's not just about having a linebacker that can cover. I mean, sometimes they'll split them out wide. You end up with a corner on them. You end up with a safety on them um, or, and you, you got guys, you know, you need to contain on the D line and the Buccaneers. I mean, all three levels, you just have players banged up, injured out for the season. So I I do agree. I think Carolina is going to ha- have a lot of success on offense, but I also wanted to talk about moving on to a, a player I think is going to have some success and Warren kind of alluded to it. Uh, it's it's Keenan Allen in his Jets game uh, as they're hosting the, as the Jets are hosting the Chargers. Now Keenan Allen has just been on uh, an absolute tear as of late, averaging 120 yards per game over his, last five games and I just talked about how the Carolina Panthers have been very vulnerable to wide receivers uh, especially number one wide receivers and with the Jets it's the the same story as well the Jets have allowed a uh, a wide receiver an opposing number one wide receiver to go to score at least 14 PPR points in six straight games uh, been over 17 points in five of those six games and they also rank 32nd dead last in Football Outsiders DVOA versus number one wide receivers giving up the second most yards per game 85.4 to number one wide receivers and it's been a situation where even when the Jets have faced a team like the Carolina Panthers before they got Greg Olson and they really only had Devin Funches, the Jets still gave up uh, 12 targets seven catches 108 yards to him um, you know they, they, they gave up you know, eight catches and 93 yards and a touch to Demarius Thomas a couple of weeks ago. Another team, the New Orleans Saints, where they really only have Michael Thomas because last week Ted Ginn did not dress. And Michael Thomas, 11 targets, nine catches, 93 yards, and a touchdown. Um, so it's it's just really been a struggle for the Jets to contain the opposing top option. They've used Morris Claiborne and shadow coverage a lot. Um, the only time that they really had any success with that was against Julio Jones which go figure but pretty much every other game Claiborne's uh been on on shadow coverage and he still gave up a lot of production uh PFF charged him with a touchdown last week to Michael Thomas the touchdown in week 14 to Demarius so I think you know we already have seen this where Philip Rivers you know as Warren alluded to he's going to force the ball to Keenan Allen like we we almost can be sure of that because that's just who Philip Rivers is and he's a he's a player that you know, when he gets frustrated, and, and this could be a situation where, you know, going across the country, playoff hopes, hanging in the balance, a team that's probably going to be more competitive in the Jets than the Chargers anticipate, you know, when he gets frustrated, he's going to revert to his old tendencies. Um, we've already seen Keenan Allen have four different games this season of at least nine catches. He's been over 100 yards in four of his last five. And in fact, you know, we have no Antonio Brown on this DFS league this weekend, well, Antonio Brown leads the lead with eight 100-yard receiving games, and the, uh, the next player uh, on that leaderboard is Keenan Allen with six 100-yard receiving games. That is as many as Julio Jones and A.J. Green combined. That's triple the amount of Michael Thomas. So, you know, everything on paper would su- and just knowing, you know, how the, the Phil Rivers and understanding the Chargers, you know, everything suggests that this is going to be another one of those high-volume games for uh, Keenan Allen, who already has seven games with double-digit targets this season.
1: Not a big props guy, but you look at Buster Screen, Morris Playboy, the two guys most likely to see snaps on Keenan Allen. And the question is, will Keenan Allen score a touchdown this week? I might take that one. I think that he's a pretty good bet if anyone on the Chargers is going to score to be the guy that does it. We heard Warren mention that it's going to be kind of a two-man show out there. And between Gordon... And Allen, I actually kind of like Allen to be the guy who gets in the end zone this week if old man Antonio Gates doesn't somehow find a way to spoil that party. Now let's go ahead and talk about some defensive situations, Warren, where they could cause problems. They could cause some situations where our DFS players might not do so well. What have you identified in week 16?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think one of the interesting ones is going to be the Jacksonville-San Francisco matchup. If you look at what um, Jimmy G has – faced uh, the last several weeks. Um, He's been playing against some defenses that really struggle and have problems um, defending the pass, Uh, and that's not going to be the case in this game here. Um, Out in – when Jacksonville brings their number one ranked pass defense out to um, San Francisco, I think it's going to be a big change for that San Francisco offense. The other thing that San Francisco has struggled with, even though Jimmy G's been so good and so efficient, is – Uh, they've struggled tremendously with actually converting in the red zone. They've kicked a ton of field goals, which is why Robbie Gould's numbers have been as insane as they've been. But, um, you know, you you look at their ability to score against this very tough Jacksonville Jaguars defense. So I think, you know, this is one of those games where we talked about earlier where some sharper money was going to be coming in and uh, some, some sharp money did come in on the San Francisco 49ers this is a game where the opinion is, in fact, split. But um, personally, I think that it's going to be a struggle for the San Francisco offense. The good one has been a maniac. He's been targeted a ton. He's probably still going to get those targets. Uh, he's, he's He's got like he's an Olympic caliber athlete. So um, maybe he gets he, he has some 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 good things happen for him. But it is going to be a challenge for them to um, produce. I think enough fantasy points for people who are like clamoring for a lot of the 49ers offense in general, um, at least much more than what they had been. Now uh, I'll keep this brief because they're playing against the Jaguars and you know, the Jaguars are a great defense. So this is, this is not like uh, a big shock to anybody, but I think that there is a considerable amount of the population that is, that looks at Jimmy G and what they've been doing and thinks, wow, you know, Jimmy G has been incredible, um, I want to keep riding this, and I'm not so sure that uh, this week is a week that they don't come a little bit back to earth um, with their passing offense. And they've really struggled running the football. Like Carlos Hyde hasn't been, uh, hasn't had the tremendous upside, um, and he hasn't been targeted in the passing game nearly as much with Jimmy G under center. So I think that there's some definite edges uh, for the Jaguars' defense here could keep uh, San Francisco's overall point total
1: and production
3: um, a little bit muted in this game.
1: Yeah, there's going to be some people out there in these big, you know, $8 contests that are going to want to try to get cute with some contrarian options some some contrarian stacks. Maybe they want to go with the other side, run it back with like a good win with their Keelan Cole or their D.D. Westbrook. I'm not so sure that I'm a big fan of that particular situation, just based on what Warren said this week. The Jaguars are probably a bit overmatched as far as the defensive skill versus the San Francisco offense. I just think that the Jags are likely to dominate, as Warren said. Chris, when you take a look at the defensive situations out there, where have you found a place to avoid or a place to maybe be a little bit skeptical of DFS plays?
2: I think one for me is Jordan Howard. You know, I think we had a similar situation a couple of weeks ago where Howard and the Bears were a home favorite against a bad 49ers team at the time, I think it was. And, you know, there was a lot of people that, that, were, that were kind of looking for, for Howard, you know, to have some success just based on that, first of all, just based on being a home favorite going against a bad team. But I expressed some, some concerns there. And I think there's similar concerns even um, in this game, again, even though Chicago is going against the Cleveland Browns, because if you look at what Chicago likes to do, they like to run the football. They are 31st in the league in pass attempts Uh and you, we know that they're, they're just going to run the football as much as they can, or at least that's what they want to do. But then you look at this Cleveland defense, and as bad as the, the team has been overall, the one area where Cleveland has been able to have success is with their run defense. And, you know, you have uh, them ranking first in run defense DVOA on the year per football outsiders, excuse me. And then you have them also ranking number two in run defense success rate. And that's per Warren's site, uh, sharpfootballstats.com. So, you know, we have uh, uh, proof on, on paper that, that Cleveland has had a ton of success against the run game. And I think that presents problems not only because Jordan Howard may struggle with his efficiency, but also because really what Jordan Howard needs to, to to put up a good day is he needs a lot of, uh, of volume for the most part I mean a couple of weeks ago in Cincinnati he had 23 carries that got him to 147 yards and a couple uh, of touchdowns his his he had a big game uh, against Baltimore where he, he had 36 carries and one against Pittsburgh where he had 23 uh, carries so if, if 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 the Bears struggle they may struggle to you know kind of stay ahead of of, of the chains and it might it might be a situation where you see a little bit more of Tariq Cohen. They don't have anything to lose at this point in, in the season by by getting Cohen out there some more. So I know it's another one of these home favorite matchups and Howard seems like kind of a, a good under the radar play and and whatnot. But at least uh, you know on paper there's just a lot of there's a lot of um reason to believe that the spot is not as good as it may appear. And, you know, there's so many other stud backs week that are in in spots where even if the matchup on paper isn't great they're getting a, a ton of volume and a ton of work in the passing game whereas Howard you know it's, it's kind of up and down with him in the passing game he has a, a, a quite a, a handful of games with zero uh, catches and zero targets and then uh, a handful more with just one catch so um, this is a situation where I'm probably gonna just pay up a little bit more and get to some of those stud backs than trying to go contrarian with Howard we we'll probably need a touchdown or even multiple touchdowns to really pay off that value because San Francisco, um, excuse me, because Cleveland has been very efficient in terms of their run defense.
1: Yeah. Good stuff there. Just hopefully not too many people that interested in taking Jordan Howard. But like I said earlier, you know, with these big tournaments out there, people are going to be trying to find ways to find unique value. And that's just not one where I would highly recommend going to let's talk about some places. I do think people are going to be going to though, Chris, I think that, There's going to be a reasonable amount of chalk for a decent-sized slate this weekend. Nothing too crazy at the moment, but we'll have to wait and see how the rest of the weekend plays out. Looking at Cam is probably the highest owned QB. You got Zeke, Gurley, Gordon, and the Saints probably going to be among the popular higher-priced running backs. You're going to look at a guy like Mike Evans on DraftKings specifically where he's underpriced. I bet he gets a lot of traction after a good game and nearly a great game last week on public, uh, you know, on a primetime game. You've got Michael Thomas, who's been coming on lately, and we mentioned Keenan Allen earlier. I think all those guys are going to be popular. Uh, Gronk, if he, I don't know what I'm going to do if he's not popular. I, I just, I guess I don't know anything. If the highest scoring, most popular tight end in the league goes off a couple of weeks in a row and he's not chalk, and then I, I guess I don't know what I'm doing. Greg Olson came back to life last week. I think he could be getting some run. And Antonio Gates' is minimum salary on both sides. So, unfortunately, I think people are going to go – there. I'm not so sure. I'm sold on that just yet. As far as defenses, Jacksonville, the Chargers, Chicago Bears, Carolina Panthers, lots of options to choose from there on defense. When you take a look at all these options just mentioned, Chris, where have you said to yourself that this is a spot I want to lay my bets in week 16?
2: Well, you know, you already know how I feel about Keenan Allen. I think the decision between somebody like Keenan Allen and somebody like Michael Thomas is a difficult one because Michael Thomas has, you know, he's he's historically had a lot of success against the Atlanta Falcons in um, that Dan Quinn defense. And you know, we talked a, a couple of weeks ago about how you really have to be kind of skeptical when you're looking back at these past matchups because so many different things can kind of change. So, um, but but I do think it's worth noting that in in all three meetings with the Atlanta Falcons so far in Thomas's career, he has had at least uh, 11 targets. He's caught at least seven passes and he has a touchdown in each of the three games. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, Dan Quinn's defense in Atlanta, they've kind of played, um, you know, they have a certain style where they, they have some cover three concepts. They, they will play man coverage at a higher rate than, than some other teams as well. But they tend to kind of have certain staples that we continue to see over and over. One of them has been kind of those passes to the running backs where they will give up a lot of receptions to running backs, Um, even if they don't always, even if it's not always high efficiency in terms of yardage, they're still giving up those catches. And, you know, another one of those things has been just kind of these, these, these short routes with Michael Thomas and allowing him to kind of catch the ball you know, in, in two of the three games, you know, he had he had 10 for 117 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in week 14 against Atlanta, that's only 11.7 yards per catch. And in, in his first career meeting with the back last year in week three, he, he had seven for 71. So that's only 10 yards a catch. Um, and, and then he had a 10 for 156 in between there. But it, it's a lot more of these just kind of, uh, you know, high percentage, not necessarily down the field action for Michael Thomas. And the Atlanta defense has kind of historically been willing to give those plays up under Dan Quinn. And I think you will probably see that continue uh, this week because the Saints have just been, I think, really good about making sure that their top three playmakers are heavily involved and that being uh, Thomas Ingram and Alvin Kamara's and, you know, Michael Thomas has one of the highest uh, target shares in the, in the league in terms of uh, percentage, of his team's targets. He's also got one of the highest shares of air yards in the league as well. So I think you're going to see Thomas kind of continue to, to to have success in a high volume role. Um, I think the Jacksonville defense is kind of an interesting situation. I'm not too sure I'm sold on them going on the road facing Jimmy Garoppolo. Not that I think Garoppolo will have a big game, but I don't know if this is necessarily a situation where it's a, it's as big of a smash spot for Jacksonville as it would be, Normally facing a a bad team that you know is start is on their you know third or fourth quarterback I think Jimmy G is actually quite good he should be able to, to to limit the damage at least a little bit from what Jacksonville is is normally able to 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 do but yeah I think I think Ke- uh, Michael Thomas is another one you know in addition to Keenan Allen somebody that I'm looking at and in terms of that Dallas game I think is interesting is that yeah you know Ezekiel Elliott's is back and we're all kind of thinking about that Todd Gurley explosion last week against the Seattle defense. We, we saw Bobby Wagner kind of hobbling around out there. Earl Thomas even called him out after the game, essentially said you were hurting us by by being out there. But Wagner, they expect him to to play again this week, but you know still not 100, percent still missing some some practices and whatnot. But we also have to remember that the Seattle pass defense is still without Richard Sherman. And, you know, Tyron Smith is going to be a big deal, I think, for, for, for the Cowboys. And we're trying to replace him not only in the pass game, but in the run game. But Seattle has struggled against the pass. They've allowed a half a yard more per attempt. Completion percentage has gone up seven points since Sherman went down over these last five games. And Dak Prescott and Des Bryant both have produced at a higher level, in fact, with Ezekiel Elliott in the lineup than they have when he has not been in the lineup in terms of both volume and efficiency, you know, uh, Dak Prescott's yards per attempt is goes up uh, about, about a half a yard with, with, um, with Zeke in the lineup. And uh, Des Bryant's touchdowns per game is at 0.5 with Zeke in the lineup compared to 0.3 with him out. Dak Prescott's uh, touchdown interception rate uh, is is a lot lower with Zeke out of the lineup. So I think, you know, in addition to just Zeke being back and you know, being in a spot where he could have some success against Seattle if they can mitigate you know, the absence of Tyron Smith, I also think that given, you know, as Warren said, this Seattle offense, they've, they've had a tough schedule these last few weeks. This is still a Seattle offense that at any given time can erupt. We still have Russell Wilson, still have the receivers, and still have Jimmy Graham in there as well. So if, if Seattle starts putting up some points, I think Dallas is at some point going to to have to throw, and that that could be good news for for Dak Prescott, for Des Bryant, and as Warren mentioned, for Ezekiel Elliott in the passing game. His passing game usage is up uh, this season uh, compared to where where it was last season. So um, that's something to keep in mind. I think there there was any, ever a time, you know, kind of harkening back to that that week. I believe it was week eight where you just had this. Uh, sh- offensive explosion with Seattle going up against Houston and you had Deshaun Watson on one side and you had Russell Wilson on the other and they were just kind of trading blows I think if there was ever a game this week that could kind of turn into a similar situation um, I-, I think it's that game I-, I think it's this game where it's not it's not just about Ezekiel Elliott it's going to be about kind of you know if, if this game if Seattle can have some success it's going to turn into Uh, a back and forth affair and then it's just a matter of for the Cowboys you know what do we do what do we do if Tyron Smith can't go you know how do we how do we kind of learn from our mistakes uh the last time out when when we didn't really give enough help uh you know to to our left tackle if they can kind of use Jason Witten to to chip and keep him in the block and they're sending Dez out and Terrence Williams and guys like that in the routes Cole Beasley I think I think Dallas can have some success in the passing game as well.
1: Yeah. Good stuff. Nice pivot off of the chalk Zeke Elliott onto a lower owned combination, or at least the discussion of the Dallas passing game, uh, Des Bryant, Dak Prescott. Those are probably good leverage plays out there. Uh, there's no guarantee of success in GPP, op, you know, tournaments no matter who you come off when it comes to leverage, but that is certainly one that makes a lot of sense when you talk about uh potential advantage over the field. If if it's not Zeke who comes through, if it's that passing game, that's interesting for GPP tournaments. Now, Warren, when you take a look at some of those chalkier guys that I mentioned or maybe someone else that you think might be a little bit popular this week, where have you landed as an interesting spot for DFS?
3: You know, I, I would agree with uh, a lot of things that Chris said. I also think, you know, Cam, just with his ability to be multi-dimensional, um, run the ball as well, uh, you know, the only real case that there would be touchdowns in that game that wouldn't come from Cam is is just on straight handoffs near the goal line, um, you know, or McCaffrey busting a long run, long run. So I, I just think Cam just provides a ton of upside there, um, and uh, I don't love it because I'm going up against him in the championships of one of my fantasy leagues. So uh, I'm not loving that element, but um, I do think he is going to have a great game, and uh, you know, should should be in for uh, to provide enough return on your investment uh, to hit him up as like what is he like one of the top five top four top five uh priced quarterbacks i think he's well deserving of that
1: yeah pretty easy call there on cam he's going to be really highly owned as quarterbacks go as far as my projections this week i have him uh, in the 15 percent range already and could get some more steam depending on who else gets on this as far as you know how popular our play he's going to be on dfs on both sites i do think that it's pretty well justified though expecting to have another good game we start talking about under the radar situations, Chris. I see who you've got here on the show notes, and I just I got all kinds of stats on on, on this matchup too. But I'm gonna
2: let you talk here. What's going on here with the Los Angeles Rams? I like Jared Goff. Uh, I think he's gonna go under the radar. Um, there's just a lot of different reasons to like him to like both his floor and his ceiling in this matchup. First, just on a, a, a more basic level, we know that you know it, it g- generally. If you're looking for something in terms of the Vegas line, since this is a kind of a, a, a Vegas line show, you know, implied point total. And, and I know Warren has talked about this too, that that implied point total is not the real team total that is released a little bit later in the week. Um, but usually they're, they tend to be pretty similar um, in terms of how they match up. But in, in terms of implied point total, that's that's the has a, a correlation to quarterback fantasy production. And the reason being is that, uh, quarterbacks, you know, if a team is scoring points, quarterbacks are generally uh heavily involved in that because you know most more more than half of a team's yardage is always going to come uh, in the passing game and usually more uh, you know two-thirds of their touchdowns as well. So the Rams implied total is up there, you know, 26 and a half, 27 and a half, depending where you look. That's one of the highest on this week's slate of games. But yeah everyone's really zeroing in only on Todd Gurley and I think Goff going a a bit overlooked I mean he's had multiple touchdown passes in six of his last seven games and he he can give you that that kind of high floor um, not only just based on his play but also that of Sean McVay in LA out here just scheming up things and ways to beat these various defenses and if you look at the Tennessee Titans I mean first of all and not that this is a problem for Todd Gurley because I think Gurley I've been on Gurley since the preseason I I, I was very high in him and I think he will have a great game as he does pretty much every week but the actual weakness for the Tennessee Titans is their pass defense not their run defense they are 24th in football outsiders uh pass defense DVOA but they rank 10th best in uh rushing so in run defense excuse me so this is a situation where I'm sure Sean McVay is kind of looking at it and saying, okay, well, you know, what, what matchups am I going to exploit in the passing game? And I think there are plenty. I mean, first of all, you have one of Tennessee's outside cornerbacks, LaShawn Sims. He just went on the injured reserve. So they're probably going to have to bump Logan Ryan, who has been playing a slot outside and put Bryce McCain in the slot. That's a downgrade pretty much at, at both spots. Um, Logan Ryan also banged up with an ankle injury in practice. And you know, that that's always good news when you have a cornerback with an ankle issue, because, uh, obviously ankle is very important when you're trying to cover uh, wide receivers. So you have a situation where Jared Goff is in this situation with a high implied total. He's in a situation where, um, you know, pretty much good matchups all the way around now that he has Robert Woods, his most targeted wide receiver back in the mix. Um, you have a kind of a struggling te- a weak Tennessee defense uh, against the pass. And then you have something Chris, that you actually brought up before the show which is that Tennessee, and this has been kind of more of a talking point locally in Tennessee. I'm not sure if it's made its way around the national media yet, but Tennessee has been kind of experimenting with more spread offense, some up-tempo, no huddle kind of things, and they did that a lot in the second half last week against the 49ers, and they had some success, and it looks like from everything we've heard just as far as the coaches talking to the media and whatnot, that that they want to do more of it, and the players are on board. Rashard Matthews just said, you know, when Marcus Mariota is calling the plays, it's 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 a lot better. I'm not sure if he was trying to take a shot at this offensive coordinator or not, but regardless, um, you know, this is a situation where the Titans could play at a bit of a faster pace than we're used to seeing them. We're kind we kind of think of them as this team that just kind of slogs along with the with Demarco Murray and Derek Henry just kind of slamming them into the line over and over. But you know, this is this is a Rams team that we've seen this time and time again this season. I mean, I think if one we've learned anything this season. It's that when the Rams are in a good spot, they usually smash. Like it's usually not just, Oh, the Rams are in a good spot and they put up, you know, 20 points and they win a game. It's like, we've seen them put up some, some pretty high, some pretty high numbers games against the giants against Houston, even Seattle last week, uh, Indianapolis earlier in the season. And, you know, also if you think about it, Todd Gurley, a lot of his fancy production uh, has come in the passing game as well. So, you're looking at a situation where Jared Goff and Todd Gurley are going to be correlated a lot more than pretty much than almost any other quarterback and uh, running back, just because uh, Gurley does get targeted so much and he's so good when he gets targeted at converting uh, those catches into yardage and into touchdowns as well. So I think you have a lot of different avenues for Jared Goff to have uh, success in this game, whether it be, the, the high tempo, whether it be throwing to, to Gurley, whether it be exploiting the matchups with these Tennessee corners and whatnot. And I, I think you could, you could use Goff as a leverage play off of Gurley, who's going to be, uh, I would say, man, probably five, maybe even 10 times as highly owned as Goff. Um, you could use him as a leverage play there and kind of build some Rams passing game stacks instead. Uh, or you could, as I mentioned, stack Goff, with Gurley, and if the Rams put up another one of these smash spots like we've seen them do time and time again this season, uh, they've actually scored 40 points on four different occasions uh, and 30 points on uh, five more occasions. Then you, you may just have access to uh, four or five, maybe even six touchdowns if you're stacking Goff and Gurley. So I really like Goff this week. I think he's a high floor. Uh, high ceiling option. Yeah,
1: or maybe Tennessee will actually be good when they run spread, spread. Marcus Mariota, obviously, used to run one of the fastest offenses in history in Oregon, and now they're in this prison where they've got him running this two-tight-end nonsense, this absolute, complete... Crap fest that we're looking at in Tennessee. This freaking what, what do they call it? The uh, exotic smash mouth. Get it out of here. Let's get at, let's get him in the spread formation and show this what this guy can do. Get some of these talented receivers involved. Let's get Delaney Walker involved. How about him? He's pretty good, right? We could actually see a you know a really high scoring game here if, if Tennessee's able to get it done. Uh, you mentioned a couple of these cornerbacks. Adoree Jackson charged with six touchdowns per Sports Info Solution, tied for third worst in the NFL. He's a young player, but. He has shown the ability to get uh, toasted for touchdowns that time. Now, Tennessee, not necessarily known as a team that gives up a lot of explosive passing plays with a dick below defense. I do think that the Rams have the tools to get it done methodically, and they certainly can get it done in 10-yard chunks just as easily as they get it done in 20, 25-yard chunks. So I, I do like this game. I wait every single week for the spot that I'm going to overdo and put, get too much exposure to and get burnt when it doesn't come through. This could be that spot, Chris. I do love it after our conversation here. Uh, Warren, what do you got here as far as under the radar plays? Um, yeah, and I'll just just uh, just to throw on to that, I would love to see
3: Tennessee do that. I'm just not fully convinced that <laughs> they'll overhaul uh, things offensively. I mean, they they are a uh, you know they're they're close to the playoffs right now, but um, at the same time, if if I was there calling plays, helping coach a team, I would absolutely work in a lot more of what's been working and been more efficient for us, which could be the tempo. But, um, I'm just, I would love to see them be make an intelligent decision with that offensive coaching staff. That would be the underdog choice for them to make an intelligent coaching decision and do that. So we'll see how that one plays out. I'm, I'm pulling for you guys though, because I hope, I hope they make the right decision and, and use a little bit more up tempo. Um, the guy, you know, I was on the fence with this one. Um, between two guys who I both think are sort of undervalued running backs in really good situations. Um, Joe Mixon continue. Like, uh, I'm assuming he's playing like he had a concussion. I think he's coming back this week. I think he's fine to play. Uh, assuming that that's the case, you know, we continue to find value going against, um, the Detroit lions run defense. Now it didn't work out so well for us last week when we did the same exact maneuver, um, and tried to get on Jordan Howard. Um, he, he did not have a very good game. That team just – I mean, they're, they're within 10 points, and they throw three interceptions, a couple of which were down inside the red zone. It was just – I have no idea why they allowed Trubisky to, like, kind of spread things out as much as they did um, and choose that approach. But at any rate, I think that there's going to be opportunities. A lot of people are thinking that, at least in the sports betting side of things, uh, some on the sharper side, that this is going to be like a Marvin Lewis send out party um, that they're going to really rally the troops. I don't know. I think Bonte's perfect actually practice last uh, yesterday uh, on Thursday after watching practice on Wednesday and, and having missed time before that with his concussion that he sustained against the Pittsburgh Steelers. So um, if, if they like produce a full out effort and you know how teams can play emotionally and obviously Detroit's in this must win game, but, if since I could keep it somewhat close, Mixon has some decent upside. I think based on his price point. Um, another guy that I was debating against, but I just don't know at this stage in the season what the team's going to do between uh, Booker and C.J. Anderson. But I think C.J. Anderson has a ton of potential against this Redskins run defense. Um, if you because in part of the reasons for the injuries on the Redskins offense, as ironic as that sounds. Um, The Redskins, like the running backs, I think they lost another guy, I was reading, to uh, one of the running backs, like some backup guy, to a broken hand in practice yesterday fielding a a punt or a kickoff. So they actually have only one guy who's like legitimately possibly playing after Piran didn't practice the last couple of days because I think of a groin injury. So, I mean, if Piran's not able to go, I think it's Capri Bibbs, and that's about it. Uh, They literally have no other running backs – if Piran can't go, that are actually on the roster and could play. I mean, I don't care they could play badly, just like physically they cannot play due to injuries. Um, they're going to be throwing the ball a ton, and that's going to provide upside in terms of clock stoppages for Denver when they do have the ball. It's also the most difficult thing on the Broncos to attack. Uh, well, they're gonna, they could have a little bit of success to keep Denver a little bit more competitive, but um, C.J. Anderson – uh, going up against this run defense who really hasn't faced a great run offense if you look at you know who the Redskins have faced last week they played the cardinals who are without like a number of their running backs um three before that they got kind of destroyed by uh the chargers in their run game and of course they allowed a lot to dallas and dallas of course doesn't even have um doesn't even have ezekiel elliott at that point in time back in week 13 and before that they played the giants who really don't have much of a, a solid run game there either so um, a limited passing game for the Redskins but a game that will have to pass a lot uh, I think the other team in this case Denver will have a lot of rushing upside um, it's just a matter of does how much of that does Booker steal away um, and that's one thing that I'm not positive about but of course they've got they've got extra rest right they played last Thursday in Indianapolis so Denver a little bit extra time to, to rest up CJ Anderson have him ready to go in this game but with them not having anything to play for, and Booker maybe being their guy next year, I have a feeling, but it'd be require a little bit more reading uh, to see what the coach wants to do here in terms of working Booker more into it. But those two guys, uh, C.J. Anderson or Mixon, I think offer um, some some decent upside based upon their matchups this week.
1: Yeah, great stuff there, Warren, uh, and great job as always on the show, guys. Um, Wanted to wish you guys both a happy holidays, uh, no matter what you are all celebrating here in the show and throughout the listening audience. I uh, really do truly appreciate you taking the time to listen. Uh, you can catch Warren on sharpfootballstats.com and sharpfootballanalysis.com, all kinds of interesting information uh, from the betting market side of thing on sharp football analysis, and certainly from the football stats side of thing. That's a tremendous resource he puts out there uh, for free, and it's just absolutely amazing. Uh, kudos to you for making that site, Warren. Absolutely love it course, you can find Chris Ravon on 444. 4. Uh, he's the senior DFS editor there, and they've got just all kinds of advanced information from a football standpoint that I think you will love if you check them out. So I'm certainly all in favor of you going over there to check out what they're doing. And of course, you can see what we've got at Rotogrinders, rotogrinders.com slash premium. We've got all the sports, not just football. You can take advantage of us on a trial basis and see if you like it. I'm pretty convinced that if you do so, you're going to find something to like about that. That's going to do it for the show. Happy holidays, everyone. For Warren, for Chris, I'm Chris. We'll be back for our final week in week 17.